Well, if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing up the chapter, wrapping up Romans chapter 8, and as I've been pointing out over the last few weeks, uh, it's sort of been a little, a mini-series, you can think of it that way, a few weeks where we've been really focused on this topic of assurance. How can we be assured of our salvation? How can we be assured that we're saved, that we're counted as a part of the people of God? And so far, we've seen Paul uh, working his way, building up this sense of assuredness that we have through the series of points that he's making throughout this chapter to his readers. The first one was that Paul had explained back at the beginning of Romans 8 that our ability to pray, Abba, Father, our ability to turn in relationship to God, to sense that we are adopted into the family of God is itself a witness of the Spirit's work within us. Uh, Paul said this is one of the first counts of assurance we had, is that the Spirit is leading us to turn towards God in prayer, which is not a work of our own hearts, but a work of the Spirit's leading. Then last week we saw that even when we don't know how to pray, maybe when we find ourselves under so much difficulty, so much sorrow, so much pain, we don't even feel like we can express Abba Father, yet still we have the assurance of knowing that the Spirit itself groans and prays in our place. The Spirit takes up our prayer for us when we can't pray. This week Paul continues to build on those assurances into what is really one of the most famous, really, sections of all of Scripture, the ending of Romans chapter 8. Uh, I want to start this morning by reading a little bit of what we did last week. Those of you who pay very close attention will recognize we read through uh, that last section. I'm going to start in verse 28. So these few verses we have already read, but I didn't comment on them very much last week, knowing that they fit better with this week's. So we're going to read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28, part of what we read last week, through the end of the chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What I want to do this morning is work through that section of Scripture, looking at three points, three sections. The first one is this idea of the foreknowledge of God. What is this assurance that God foreknew, predestined, called, and glorified? Second, what is this assurance that God is for us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And then this final assurance in the question, Paul says, I am sure nothing can separate us from God. The first section is this question about God's foreknowledge. Paul begins by a series of statements about God foreknowing. Really what he's doing is he's building a series of images of words together to this final statement that like Christ, we too will be glorified with Christ. Um, What Paul doesn't do here, maybe nearly as much as we would like for him to, is give us a more descriptive explanation of each of these ideas. Uh, In each of these words are major biblical ideas, predestined, called, foreknowledge. But here, Paul simply strings them together in a series of statements. There's plenty of places we could turn to look at each of these ideas, and in fact, we will. Paul's going to take up many of these ideas at fuller length and in bigger descriptions in the chapters of Romans to come. But here in chapter 8, I think Paul's biggest point is back under this topic of assurance. Paul is putting together a kind of pastoral sentence. His intention here is that these ideas would build towards the assurance that we have in God. I've pointed out how Paul has drawn a major contrast in Romans chapter 8 between this spirit of adoption we now experience as believers versus that spirit of rebelliousness that is characteristic of the human heart back in Romans chapter 1. Really, everything from Romans 1 has been building to this comparison with who we now are in Romans chapter 8. So let me read you a couple of verses from Romans chapter 1, because I really want you to get this juxtaposition that Paul is drawing out here. So in Romans chapter 1, we read, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. By the way, he's talking about us. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is, although we could know God through his creation, through what he has revealed to us, imprinted on our own hearts, a consciousness of right and wrong, Nonetheless, we refuse to acknowledge God, refuse to give thanks to God, refuse to worship God. But instead, we became more futile and darkened in our hearts and thinking as we began to worship things created, to practice idolatry, to carve out our own way of being and controlling life. For Paul, this is the image of humanity. Futile in thinking, foolish in hearts, refusing to acknowledge or give thanks to God. But here, in Romans chapter 8, what Paul sees is people who know God as Father. Not those who refuse to acknowledge him or give thanks, but those who bow a knee to him and pray, Abba, Father, who worship him and give of their life in obedience to him. The point Paul's trying to make in this statement about foreknowledge, predestined, called, glorified, this trajectory of these ideas, is that this Abba Father prayer, this turning of ourselves towards God, is not an achievement of our own. The fact that we turn to God and pray is not so we could say to ourselves, haven't we become such good Christians? Aren't we just good Christian people showing up and reading Romans 8 and worshiping together this morning? 
For Paul, anything that is achieved in the Christian life for him is evidence of the fact that God has been at work transforming the human heart from the darkness and futility of Romans 1 to the potential of this prayer, Abba, Father, in Romans 8. It's evidence, remember the topic assurance, that God has been at work within your life calling and leading and guiding and sanctifying and bringing you to the place that you are. That progress that we see in our life, even the smallest bits of it, are evidence of the fact that he has been at work in your life, calling you, speaking to you, leading you by his spirit. For Paul, this is first and foremost a statement of the assurance that you have. Any progress, no matter how small the progress, is evidence of the fact that God the creator of the universe, by the work of his Holy Spirit, is at work within your life. If God was able to break through the hardness of your heart, the darkness and futility of your thinking, if he could break through that tension to hear the gospel, to receive the gospel, is he not also able to continue that work? to conform you into the likeness of Christ, that you might be glorified like Christ. Again, Paul isn't trying to say everything about this topic. He will get there, but he does. Look at verse 31, say, in light of these massive ideas, what then shall we say to these things? What do we make of this? What do we make of the way that God has sovereignly been leading us by his spirit? For Paul, it comes down to this statement. If God is for us, then who can be against us? This is the point Paul wants to make. It's really two points. That so much of Romans chapter 8, and really in so many ways, all of Romans up to this point has been leading towards. God is for you. If so, what can be against you? Let's take this first idea. The idea of God being for us. Um, that's an idea that gets thrown around quite a bit. Most of you have probably heard at some point or said yourself this verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? But this isn't a kind of Christian slogan that we throw around to try to build up optimism in a moment. It's not something that we would print on a banner and take with us to the streets. God is for us. You better not be against us. It's not some kind of badge that you wear into confrontations to prove no matter what, I'm going to win because God is for me and not for you. For Paul, this idea of God being for us is a treasure and a wonder of assurance that the gospel reveals to us, leading us into a sense of gratitude and worship and awe. This is not something that in Paul's day, and probably in our own day, most people come up with on their own. I was looking back this week over my notes from seminary, believe it or not. I still have those things saved in a file way deep on my computer. Uh, I had Dr. O, some of you might know, for Romans, which was one of the great classes I took in seminary. And I was looking back through my notes from that class. And uh, I had written down a note that he said that this phrase, God is for us, is the most important and critical phrase in the book of Romans and maybe in all of Paul's writing. Uh, He said that because no one else was saying stuff like this in Paul's day. We hear it and once again think, oh, God is for us. Who could be against us? Yes, God, we're his people. He protects us. He's for us. It can almost start sounding cliche. But in Paul's day, and if we were really honest about what we believe, that idea is so 
counterintuitive to what we think God is doing, how we think of religion, and equally so for Paul when he was writing it. In the first century of Paul writing this, most of the conservative Jews around Paul, the scribes, the Pharisees, they thought of their relationship with God in a kind of fear-based approach that if they broke God's laws or violated his commands, God was going to get them, was going to remove his protection from them, was going to disown them. Their entire disposition towards God was based on the idea of we better do what's right or else. No Pharisee would have gone around saying, God is for us, God is for us. He would have said things like, if I am for God, God is for us. The idea was, what I do determines this relationship that I will have with God. The religious elites of that first century, people like the Sadducees, a minority group but an influential and powerful group seated in a position of authority over the temple, Uh, By this time, probably because of their success, most of them thought of their relationship with God as a kind of distant relationship. That God had set in place laws and rules, and at this point in Israel's history was distant and uninvolved, and they were left, the power brokers of Israel, to try to negotiate and barter their way into some sense of stability and peace and security. It was a pragmatic approach to religion. God had given some advice, but everything was pretty much left to them to figure it out. The most radical of Paul's day were the zealots, those who thought of God and their relationship to him in a kind of nationalistic political term. They thought the future, the hope, the assurance that they had in God was that God was going to violently overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as a divine nation ruled by God. And it was their job to initiate that action by violence and force, if be. None of those groups would have said to one another as a sense of assuredness, God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? Each of them would have had caveats. God is for you if you follow his rules. God is for you if you're on the right political side of the event. God is for you if you follow the law and carve out your own sense of security and peace by bartering because honestly God's not really looking out for you. Each of them had their own way of thinking of this relationship they had with God. The Gentiles, Paul writes about in Romans itself, had so many gods that none of them thought of the gods in a kind of personal way. Instead, the gods were a kind of force, a local power that needed to be manipulated or appeased or bought off for favor. Into the context of this world, Paul's words, God is for you, is not something people would have understood. It was counterintuitive, countercultural, and for most, probably shocking in its simplicity. No caveats. How could you believe that, Paul? After all, Paul, you're persecuted and rejected just about everywhere you go. Half the time, you're chased out of cities by your opponents. Sometimes you're beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Your own people have mostly rejected you. Most of the Gentile rulers are just hoping you don't show up in their town to stir things up. And yet you can say with the simplicity of the statement, God is for us. I've been doing uh, these podcasts over the last few weeks with uh, Jim Bradford, who pastors at Central Assembly. They've been really interesting, and we've been talking a lot about uh, pastoral ministry, and my job is just to ask good questions and let him talk. But there's this phrase that he's been using several times that I've been thinking about. He's talked multiple times about how he wants to think theologically and not just emotionally. And I think that's a big part of what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 8. 
It's easy for us to have emotional responses to what God is and isn't doing, to look out at the situations we find ourselves in the midst of, the complexity of our own day, the sickness that we may suffer, the loss that we experience, and to emotionally start drawing conclusions. It sure doesn't seem like God is for me. If God was for me, wouldn't things be going a little more my way, turning out a little more in my favor? But instead, what Paul does in Romans chapter 8 is teach us to think theologically, to think about what we know is true, what we most believe, but at times we find ourselves struggling to hold on to. This is what Paul does in this chapter. He says to his readers, stop for a second and think. What are we to make of these things? God for us, who can be against us? And Paul continues, as he said in Romans 8, the Spirit is praying for you through groaning, through suffering. But more than that, as he says in this section, God has made the sacrifice of his own son that you couldn't. And Jesus not only came, not only died, but was resurrected, bore your sins for your righteousness. And then Paul adds a phrase we haven't seen yet in Romans. It's the end of verse 34. This Jesus who is both uh, crucified but raised, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is now resurrected and at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf. I want to take a moment to recognize what Paul is saying in this, because again, this word interceding is one of those Christian-sounding words that we assume we know, right? We think of intercessory prayer, the image, Jesus is praying for us, he's beside the Father, God, do good for them, God, show them mercy. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying when he talks about this image of Christ beside the throne interceding. Interceding is a legal word. Jesus is like an attorney before the bench, the courtroom of heaven, pleading or arguing a case before the Father. That's what this idea of interceding means. He is going before the throne to make requests, to argue a case, to put forth an opinion. The hard part of that statement is uh, we don't have much of a case to make. This is really what Romans has been saying. Who can stand before God and claim his own righteousness? Remember Paul's account, no one is righteous, no, not one. The case that we have before God is, I have failed. I failed to live up to righteousness. So what is this case that Jesus now argues on our behalf before God? Jesus is saying this. It is true that they have sinned, you and me, that we have fallen short of God's demands, that we have not been righteous, but we have given in to the idolatry. We have refused to worship God or give thanks to him as God, that we do not belong within God's family. We've rejected this adoption as sons and daughters. We have not called out Abba, Father. And as Romans says, the wages of sin is death, not just as a punishment, but also by our own choice, having chosen this path towards death over the path offered us of life. Jesus says all of this is true, but he also points out, I have died for them. The wages of death have been paid. Jesus doesn't say simply, God, have mercy on them. Jesus says the debt that was required has been paid in full. It would be unjust for God 
to hold their sins against them. You'd be counting their sins twice because I have already paid for their sins. They are no more. What Jesus is doing before God is pleading for justice, not just mercy. The just thing, he says, is because of my sacrifice for you to offer them my own glory, my righteousness, my justification. I really want you to see this. When Christ argues your case before God, he is arguing that there is no sin, no judgment left to be had. There's an old hymn that goes, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. What Jesus pleads before the throne room of God is that sin has been done away with, that sin has been condemned in his sacrifice, that we are no longer dead to sin, but alive in Christ, adopted into God's family by Christ's sacrifice. This is what Paul is saying when he says, Jesus who died for you stands beside God, reminding him of the righteousness we have by his sacrifice. This is what it means to think theologically, not just emotionally. When we find ourselves beaten down and wondering, is God really for me? Is God really on my side? If God really cared, why do things seem to go the way that they go? We remind ourselves, as Paul does, of this. Christ stands, even now, arguing my defense, pleading before the throne my case. Some of you really need to hear this. It has more than just a theological point or something that you ascribe to because you're a Christian, but something that is true and real. You are righteous before God. You will be glorified with Christ. Your sins are no more. Forgotten, removed, washed away. Remember Jesus' words to that woman caught in adultery we looked at a couple weeks ago. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Tomorrow, when you find yourself in a compromised position, or maybe the next day, when you stumble and you sin again, you think to yourself, now I've done it. I'm such a failure at this whole thing. Surely I'm at the end of my rope with God. Sooner or later, enough is going to be enough. He's going to get me. I'm going to lose that favor. At that very moment, sin still to come in your life. At that moment like this moment, Jesus stands beside God at his right hand and pleads a case of righteousness in your defense. He says that sin is one I've already paid for, one that I've already borne on my body and suffered for. That sin the one still to come in your life is one that he's already forgiven. Some might wonder if this makes little of sin. How nice it is that future sins are forgiven. I shouldn't have to worry about it. Uh, go back and listen to some of the, 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 Paul gets this question earlier in Romans, so go back and listen to those sermons for the full answer. But what it should do when you hear that, when you recognize that Christ, even in the midst of your moment of sin, stands in heaven pleading your case, What it should do is overwhelm you with a sense of gratitude and wonder and worship. How could this be? 
How could this be that in the moment I turn away from him, he pleads my case for me? How could it be that when I sin against him, he bears the consequences of that sin for me? And let me ask you this question. What kind of assurance is that? What kind of hope do you have in a God like that? What does it really mean to read those words, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who condemns you? If this God pleads your case in the moment you sin against him. Paul puts it this way in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul points out that if you can get hold of this idea that Christ died for you, if God was willing to do that on your behalf, how much more is he doing that list of words, conforming you and leading you, guiding you, glorifying you, saving you. So for Paul, the great assurance of our faith is this realization. What can separate us from the love of God? Who can be against us? Who can condemn us? Who better is there to argue our case, surely not us, but to argue and plead on our behalf than Jesus Christ himself? And so Paul will say we are more than conquerors. Not just victors who have earned our own victory, warriors who have fought and come back with our own success, but those who have received this victory as a gift, more than conquerors, recipients, to take full hold of this amazing assurance that we have, not in ourselves, but in him. Everything is mine, and yet I've done nothing to gain it. There is nothing that can take it from me, for Christ himself pleads in my defense. Can you find an assurance in all of the world stronger and more airtight and more hopeful than that? And so Paul wraps it up with his final words. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, things of today nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The ESV I'm reading from uses the phrase, I am sure. Some of you may know the more traditional, I'm persuaded. I like the phrase, which is uh, just as equally right translation, I'm won over, convinced, convicted, confident, I've thought through and recognized his spirits leading, his spirits praying on my behalf. This progress that I see, not by my own might, but by his leading. I've thought back on just what Christ has done for me. And I've come to the conviction, been won over by what he has done, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Augustine, one of the first church fathers, said, To be assured of your salvation is no arrogant stoutness. You're not boasting or bragging to say God is for me. It's an act of faith. It is devotion. It is not presumption. It is God's promise. The assurance of salvation is assured by the promise of God for you.
So what do we do? We pray. Abba, Father. When we can't pray, we do our best to groan and trust that the Spirit hears our heart and prays for us. We consider. As we talked about last week, we count all of the things that we've seen him at work doing. We think theologically what we know, not just what we feel. And we're patient, waiting and watching for all of the ways that his spirit moves us towards conformity with Christ, suffering what we may, but trusting and believing and finding our hope and assurance in the Christ, the sacrifice, who pleads our defense. God's grace, our assurance. This morning, we're going to close out by prayer, but also taking communion together. If you've got your elements, you can begin the process of opening these very carefully. Uh, I want to read to you Paul's words that he writes in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this as he gathered with believers, much like we're doing, to receive together the elements. Paul writes to them, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Don't miss those phrases. The bread that we eat is for you. God, for you. The cup that we drink, a new covenant, a new relationship, a commitment that God makes to his people, a promise to persevere us through until he returns. So we take these elements this morning as an act of remembering and as an act of committing ourselves to the assurance that we have in him. This is the hope that we have. His body, his blood, his spirit, his promise, and his work to see us through. Let's pray together over the elements and we'll take them. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed by these words in Romans 8. That God, you would give of your life, your body and your blood for us. Not because we were righteous, but while we were still in sin, you would come. Not to condemn this world, but to save this world. That God, when our emotions do get the best of us, when doubt creeps its way in, You don't leave us or forsake us, but your spirit groans in suffering with us. In Christ, you plead before all of heaven the case of our justification, the case of our salvation. God, how small are our emotions and our perspective when compared to the goodness and the mercy and the grace at work above us. God, you were at work in ways saving and guiding and leading us too great for us to understand. Forgive us. 
forgive us of our doubting it, our struggle to hold on to it. And by your spirit, God, as you promise in your word, give us this hope of assurance that we have in you. By the power of your spirit, pour into our hearts a sense of your grace and mercy that perseveres us, that steadies us, so that we, like Paul, can say we are won over, we are convinced, we are convicted that you are for us. And that if you are for us, what can be against us? Not the suffering of this moment, not the suffering of days to come, not the powers of this world. Nothing in this creation can separate us from this grace that we have in you. So we take these elements this morning, God, both humbled by your grace and confident and boldened by your grace, remembering this assurance that we hold. And so we worship you by this act of participating in communion, your body and your blood together as we sing and worship you in our hearts with our words this morning. Pour your spirit out on us. Assure us of the hope that we have in you. It's in your name we pray.